there was a little girl that was having a conversation with her teacher about Bible stories. And the little girl was saying how much she loved the book of Jonah and the fact that Jonah got swallowed by a well. And the teacher was like, oh, honey, that's not true. It's impossible. A a well's throat is too small to have a human go through it. That's not a true story. And the little girl says, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah if it's true. And the teacher said, well, what if Jonah's in hell? And the little girl says, then you ask him. (laughs) And when you think about this idea of hell, hell, you know, for me, hell, hell was a real motivation for me to come to Christ. I mean, when I was 16 and I heard the reality of sin and the, 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 the result of what happens if I don't respond to Christ's grace and, and just the, the, the reality of hell, it really caused me to move towards Christ. And maybe that's similar with you. Maybe something like that happened to you where it was like, wow, yeah, I mean, you know, it was, I saw God's judgment. And, 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 and I think there's a place in evangelism for us to share about the, the reality of those who refuse Christ's grace. There's a place in evangelism for us to talk about hell, as difficult as it is. But even more than that, if you want to know about God's kindness, study hell. If you want to know about God's goodness, study hell. Studying hell and understanding the realities of the fate of those who don't respond will actually show you God's mercy and his goodness in our own life. But you know, I think it's been a solid two decades before I heard a talk on hell. I mean, it's been a solid two decades. I don't know why, I think we're just kind of embarrassed. We're like, hey, focus on the positive. You know, we don't wanna, we don't want, if it's a first time visitor and they see this, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna hit Sonic. You know, it's like, we don't wanna, we don't want, we don't want that. We don't know where people are at. And so I think for some of us, hell is literally like Christian's dirty little secret. You know, we try to soften it. We're like, oh, let's just focus on the good stuff. But uh, again, when you, when, you, when you do that, you lose God's kindness and his holiness. 250,000 people die every day. 250,000 people die every day. Now just ponder that. Ponder if you're the one to judge them and how fast they're coming in. How many are sent to glory and how many are sent to damnation. 250,000 entering into eternity every day being judged. Picture that. Here's what God says in John 5. For an hour is coming when all who are in the grave will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Notice what this talks about. Everyone is eternal. We're all going to be resurrected. We're all going to be resurrected. The word resurrection, it just means to stand again. It it means to stand again. Everyone will stand again. Some will stand again to be entered into glory and some will stand again to be entered into eternity of separation. For the next two sessions, I wanna focus on God's heaven and God's hell. And so 
right now we're just going to spend time looking at God's hell. When you look at the Old Testament and you try to figure out where do people go when they die? Is it heaven or hell? There's an interesting word that you come across fairly often. And the word is sheol, sheol. Now, when you look at sheol, it's used 65 times in the Old Testament. And when you look at sheol, it just literally, it, it, I'm sorry about my voice. It literally just means the place where the dead go, the place where the dead go. Now, when it talks in the Old Testament about the righteous who die, who go to Sheol, it's peaceful. When it talks in the Old Testament about the unrighteous who die, who go to Sheol, it's horrific. And to understand which one's which, you have to see the context. So let me just give you some examples, okay? This is Jacob, when he goes down to Sheol, he says this, if harm should happen to me on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So for Jacob, it was just a place of the dead. It wasn't torment. He wasn't afraid of it. It's just a place where it's just the grave. The sons of Korah, when they write Psalms, listen to what they say. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Again, the place of the dead for the righteous. It doesn't seem like a place of torment at all. It's just a resting place. Or David, David says this. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. Or if I make my bed in the grave or Sheol, you are there. And so again, for in the Old Testament, this idea of heaven and hell and how it, how it develops, it's rather slow in how it develops. And you see this word Sheol and you're like, okay, wait, wait. Okay, so when the righteous go to Sheol and it's just like a resting spot. It's the grave. It's where they're just there. But then you read other passages of the unrighteous talking about Sheol and you're like, wait a second. For a fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depth of Sheol. It devours the earth and its increase. It sets on fire the foundations of the mountain. And you're like, okay, wait a second. This, this doesn't seem like Sheol's a pleasant spot. This doesn't seem like I want to go there. You know, this is, this is not good. Isaiah, listen to how it describes Sheol. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For the worm dieth not, the fire will not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Sheol here is described as a place of suffering. Daniel 12, multitudes, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some, when they go to Sheol, will find life some contempt or death. And so what happens? What happens? You, you, you come to the end of the Old Testament and you're like, okay, so if I was to graph this out, I would have like a circle and I would call the circle Sheol. And I would have a compartment of Sheol that's for the righteous. And I would have a compartment that's utter torment. That's like, that's what I would think. And then you turn to the New Testament and all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I'm getting this in 3D now. I'm seeing this in 3D. Jesus literally describes Sheol like that. The two compartments. Listen to Luke 16. He says this, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. 
At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores, and then comes death. The time comes when the beggar dies, and the angels carry him to Abraham's side. So he gets taken to Abraham's side. And the rich man, he also dies and, and, and in hell, where he's in torment. He looks up, and he sees Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And he calls to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Now, let's just look at this for a second. So here you have a story that Jesus tells. Is this a parable? Is this a parable? Well, the problem with calling it a parable is that Jesus doesn't introduce it as a parable, but then also in no parables does Jesus use people's names. And here he's like, there's Lazarus and there's Abraham. So right off the bat, you're like, this might not be a parable. This might be like a literal description. And then you start looking at other things. You start looking at other things. You're like, okay, they're conversing. Like they're having a conversation. The rich man in hell is talking to Abraham, but he can't, he can't cross over. But they're having a conversation. They recognize each other. They, they, they see who each other is. And then look at this. The rich man is in complete torment. I mean, I, I mean, have pity on me and send Lazarus. Lazarus, to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue. I mean, what is the reality of hell from the words of Christ? I mean, I have... I have never been so thirsty where I have said, just give me a drip, just a drip. That's all I want, just a drip. Just to cool my agony. I mean, think about that, think about that. And so, as we ponder this, we go, man, if you were to line up everyone at your work and you were to say to them, hey, give me the top five people who are the most loving people in the world, in all of history, people at your own work who are non-believers, guess who's going to make the top five for everyone? Jesus. It's probably going to go Jesus, Gandhi, and then whoever, okay? But like the, Mother Teresa, those are the three, right? Jesus, Gandhi, Mother Teresa. But when you think about it, you're like, oh my gosh, Jesus, he's the one that describes, we only knew, we only knew Sheol in the Old Testament. We only knew Abraham's side and, and, and hell. We, are, we, only, we, we didn't know all of that in detail. We only, knew the, we only knew the grave. Jesus comes along and says, oh, let me, get you, let me give it to you in 3D. And the most loving person that everyone in your life thinks is like, oh, he's the most loving person. He actually talked about hell, describes hell, and is one who gives us the definition of hell, Jesus. He doesn't just stop here in Luke 16. He continues. He's like, you will be, this is from Jesus. You'll be, he talked about hell way more than heaven. You'll be thrown outside into the darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 8, 12. 
Matthew twenty two thirteen. bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And again, over and over and over again. So it's interesting the reputation Christ has, yet what he actually says. What that tells me is there's a way that I can share the reality of the lost and the eternal torment that they will embrace without being unloving and quite the opposite because most people view Christ that way and they will go away into eternal torment. So we move into our new house. We're so excited. We're there for about six months and the house across our street is, is vacant. And all of a sudden I see this U-Haul truck. So I'm so excited. I pray they have kids. You know, I'm like, give us little kids to play with, you know, and it's two retired people. And so, you know, I'm like, give us their grandkids, you know? And so I go over, the U-Haul's like lifted up and, and, and I go over and I'm introducing myself. He's like, I'm Larry. She's like, I'm Gigi. And they just moved there. He's like, will you help me move the treadmill? I was like, sure, Jess, get over here. You know, and I, my wife helped. And um, so we, um, you know, right away, I try to fly my flag early. I'm like, hey, man, I don't know if you guys go to church, but here's where we go. We'd love to have you. And boy, Larry was like, no, we don't do that. And I was like, okay, well, you know, just saying, you know, so over time we had these mailbox conversations. So my office, I could see my mailbox and his mailbox was across the street. So whenever I saw him go out to get his mail, I strategically went out to get mail. I'm like, oh, Larry, wow, we always have the same time. You know, different every day, but same exact time, you know? <laughs> what do you know? And so, uh, so I'm like, Larry, man, it's Easter. You gotta go to church. Just like this, you have to. And he's like, Todd, I'm not interested. And I'm like, Larry, I mean, let's be honest. You're like 65, you're no spring chicken, okay? You need to figure this out because like, we gotta get this taken care of. And he's like, I'm not interested, Todd. So we just kept going back and forth. Uh, me trying to get Larry, you know, the gospel. And uh, uh, anyway, like we had him over for dinner and I don't know, maybe a year went by. Get a knock on the door and it's Gigi and she's crying and Gigi doesn't cry. And I said, what's going on? She says, Larry's been diagnosed with esophageal cancer. He's been given 18 months to live. Well, man, my heart starts beating. I, I'm like, oh my gosh. I, 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 I follow her literally back across the street. I go into the kitchen. He's sitting there reading Golf Magazine. And I sit down and I'm like, Larry, oh my gosh, man. I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm not trained in this, but I'm like, I'm just trying to be empathetic. And like, man, and then I was like, man, Larry, I'd love to share with you the gospel and with Jesus and the hope. And, and he was like, man, I'm not interested. And he's like, hey, let's talk about Tiger Woods. And so I ended up going back home saw Larry less and less. His trips to the mailbox got far fewer. And then finally the knock on the door came. Todd, he's got about an hour to live. I grabbed my Bible. I mean, I got 30 seconds to figure a verse. I go across the street. I go down the hallway to the left of the master bedroom and I see Larry, 92 pounds, 
wearing a diaper, spitting in a cup. And I get on my knee and I open up to the book of John and I just start with Larry. But it was interesting because I'm facing Larry and Larry's facing me. But as I'm talking to Larry, he's not looking at me. He keeps doing this. I'm sharing, and I'm like, what's, what's he looking at? What's... So I turn, and I realize he's watching TV. And I said, Larry, you're going to die in 52 minutes, and you're watching Mythbusters? And he says, just leave, Todd. Just leave. Sure enough, hour later, Gigi closes his eyes. And I think about that today. As Larry's been in hell for four years and seven months. And I think about, it's not just Jesus that talked about the reality of hell. It's all throughout scripture. He will punish those, Paul says, who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out from his presence. Or what about this one in, in Hebrews 10? There, there's no, there no longer remains a sacrifice. If you reject Christ, where else are you gonna go? There's just a fearful expectation of judgment. And a fury of fire that consumes the adversaries. Again, it's, it's on repeat. Jude, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Or Revelation 21, for the cowardly, the, the, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. And this is the second death. And so when I think about what does this look like? Like if I was to, to look at how the Bible unfolds the doctrine of eternal punishment, what, what does it look like? And the first thing I would say is in the Old Testament, what we see is we see Sheol is the grave. Sheol is the grave. And on one side of Sheol, we've seen what we call Abraham's side. And this is the place where like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those who were faithful, those who believed in God, uh, those who believed in Yahweh and the Messiah to come, that's where they went. And then I see on the other side, hell or Hades, those words are interchangeable. And this is the place where the unrighteous in the Old Testament went. And again, we see this in Luke. We see this in Luke. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man died and was buried and in hell, he lifted his eyes and began a conversation. Now, the earliest creed we have, the earliest creed we have is called the Apostles' Creed. And it's called the Apostles' Creed, not because the apostles wrote it, but because it was the first creed written in 140 AD. Now, I want you to listen to the Apostles' Creed, the earliest creed written by Christ's followers. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died and he was buried and he descended into hell. And three days later, he rose again. 
He was crucified, he died, and he was buried, and then he descends into hell. This is in the Apostles' Creed. And so, you know, we have to ask the question, what, why would they put this in there? Jesus descending into hell? Like, where did they get that? Why would they even in, in involve that? Jesus died on a Friday. He rose on a Sunday. What was he doing Saturday? Christians forget Saturday. We love Friday and we love Sunday, but we forget Saturday. What was he doing? What was he doing on Saturday? Well, the reason the apostles, the early writers wrote this is because of a few verses. First Peter, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, he proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they were formerly, they did not obey being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And so what, what their interpretation of this was is the spirits in prison were those in hell and Hades and Sheol. And so Jesus on Saturday, he goes into Sheol. He goes into hell and Hades and he proclaims the gospel not to offer salvation but to validate he was the Messiah and they rejected him then watch this Ephesians adds this then when he ascends he doesn't ascend alone he comes up with a host of others and he gives gifts to men he ascended what does that mean but that he also descended and so they were trying to make sense of these verses. What does it mean that he proclaimed to the spirits in prison? What does it mean that he ascended and brought people with him? And so what the, what the, the early church, what they thought was and what, how they put this all together, and this is sort of where, where, where we land is that Jesus on Saturday, he goes into Hades and hell. He proclaims and validates he was the Messiah. And then he comes out with the host of captives. He doesn't return to the Father alone, but he comes with all those who were awaiting since creation in Abraham's side. We love Friday. We love Sunday. But Saturday is the hinge. Saturday's the hinge. Listen to our mentor, Timothy Tennant, when he says this. It is clear that although this is one of the most neglected aspects of Jesus's ministry, the descent into the place of the dead is crucial to our overall understanding of the way the death and resurrection of Jesus is able to have such a far reaching implications in redeeming the world and defeating Satan. We should view Holy Saturday, which falls between Good Friday, the death, and Easter, the resurrection, as a hinge that joins these two great acts of God into a single glorious event. Don't forget Saturday. Don't forget Saturday. And so, so man, for you and I right now, if a non-believer dies, where do they go? Well, Abraham's side is no more because that, all those went to temporary heaven, which we'll learn about tomorrow. 
when a non-believer dies, they go to hell and they await judgment. Judgment takes place when Christ returns again. All the dead will come up before him and then everyone will be sent into the lake of fire. The first death is when you die and go to hell or Hades. The second death is when you're judged and thrown into the lake of fire. Let me say that again. The first death is when you die and you go into Hades as a non-believer. If you're a Christ follower, Paul says, instant death means you're instantly in the presence of Christ. So we don't have to, we, we don't go to Abraham's side. But if you're a non-believer, when you die, the first death is you go into hell and you await judgment in torment. And then at the end of time, when Jesus comes back, you stand before him and you're sent to the second death. And this is, this is what we read John talking about in Revelation. Then I saw a great white throne and those who were seated on it for his presence in earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life and the dead were judged. Again, this is after the second coming. And the sea, the sea gave up the dead. That's death in Hades. Death in Hades gave up the dead. The Sheol gave up the dead. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And it says again, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he too will be thrown into the lake of fire. And so again, if an unbeliever dies, they are going to hell or Hades, but that's not their final rest. That's not their final torment. That's temporary torment. When, the, when Christ returns, they will be judged. And then, then when that happens, all of Sheol will be thrown into the lake of fire because the only thing there is hell and Hades. Listen to what, Listen to what Tim, Timothy Keller says about hell. In short, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. They are utterly finally locked into a prison of their own self-centeredness. They continue to go to pieces forever, blaming everyone but themselves. That is why it's a travesty to picture God casting people into hell, crying out, I'm sorry, let me out. That's not what's happening. There, that's not what's happening. Hell, Keller continues, as, as C.S. Lewis says, the greatest monument to human freedom. Romans 1.24 says God gave them up to their desires. What does God do in the end? He, he gives people what they most want, freedom from himself. What could be more fair than that? How does that play out in our life? My wife has a Bible study at University of Arkansas. Every Monday night, there's about 20 girls that come to our house to, to basically hear her unpack God's word. And one of the girls was telling her a story. She's like, man, I went home for Christmas break. Listen to what happened. Like halfway home, my mom, she calls me. She's like, Kate, are you coming home? And Kate's like, yes. And, uh, and she's like, why? And, Kate, and Kate's mom's like, well, I'm on the app and I'm noticing you're going the wrong way. Kate was extremely bad with directions. And, 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 and Kate's like, I'm going the wrong direction. And she's like, yes, you're going the wrong direction. If you wanna get home, you gotta turn, turn around. And, and, and 
Kate was telling my wife this story, just kind of in jest to tell a funny story. But Jess looked at Kate and said, Kate, were you mad at your mom for telling you to turn around? You were going the wrong direction? She's like, no. She's like, did that make you bitter at her? No. Kate's like, I actually, I needed it because I didn't realize it. And so in the same way, for many in our lives, it is difficult to say, listen, here's what scripture says, and you're going the wrong way. If you want to get home, here's what scripture says you have to do. What does the reality of hell do for us? Man, the reality of hell, seeing the reality of hell does a few things, okay? There, there's some important, there's important qualities in studying God's character when it comes to hell. The first thing we, 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 we realize when we study hell, it, it wasn't intended for us. God didn't create hell for the image bearers that he created in the garden. Who did he create hell for? Matthew 25, he says who he created hell for angels and the demons. But when humanity rebelled, that's where they went because they joined the rebellion of angels and demons. So the first thing you realize when you study hell is it actually wasn't intended for us. God doesn't even want us to go there. That's the second thing you realize. He doesn't want us to go there. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some have count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I mean, oh my gosh. When, I don't know if the, the first Sunday morning, if you guys were here or not, when I was here. Were you here Sunday? Okay, so um, I've been looking for him. I don't think he's in here tonight, which is fine. But I'll, we can talk about him. Um, but um, there was this beeping sound over here. Did you hear it? Does anybody remember the beeping sound? You do, because you were sitting over there. It was like, deed, deed. And I'm sitting there, they're getting ready to introduce me, and I was like, man, is this going to keep going? If it is, I'll just, yeah, it's fine. Deed. And I was like, wow, you know, it might actually deed, keep going. It might deed, keep going throughout the talk. Anyway, he came, the gentleman that that, that that was happening to came up to me after the talk. And he was like, I am so sorry. And I was like, oh, man, dude, I don't mind the beeps. You know, I love beeps. You know, and he's like, you do? I was like, yeah, don't mind the beeps. He's like, I'm so sorry, man. And uh, I was like, wow, how'd you wind up at Gold Lake? He's like, I, uh, I came to Christ when I was 70. I had three heart attacks. I was supposed to die after each one. And after the third heart attack, God got my attention. And I was like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. He is, he is, he is patient with us. He is patient with us. The third thing you realize when you study and understand God and, his, and God's hell is you understand his holiness. You understand his holiness. I mean, 
Holiness is hard for us to understand. We don't share that characteristic, right? Love, oh man, I fell in love with my wife. I can sort of understand. Mercy, oh man, I have mercy on my kids. I can sort of understand. Holiness means distinct, cut out, set apart. Like that's what holiness means, cut out, set apart. So when it comes to holiness, I have no concept of that. Isaiah says this, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Seraphims, these angels, these angels, they're holy, okay? They're holy. You think, well, the angels are sinless, right? They're, they're holy. Even the angels have to have more than one, two wings because they have to cover their feet, which represents the fall, and they have to cover, what else they cover? The, the, their face, and that with two they flew. Even the angels... This is how set apart, cut out God is. And they cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Do you realize nowhere else in the Bible are three of the same character of God said back to back to back? Nowhere in the Bible do you see love, 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 grace, 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 wrath, wrath, wrath. The only thing you see is holy, holy, holy. Why? Because God is utterly distinct. He is utterly set apart. And so when you study God, God's hell, you realize, oh my gosh, anything, anything less than hell would, 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 be, would disgust his holiness. If we think eternal torment for eternity is too much, then we don't understand God's holiness. If, we don't, if we're like, oh my gosh, I don't understand. I mean, how could God do this? Like I sin for like 80 years and then he sends me to hell forever. Okay, overkill. I mean, come on, really? Like, who would do that? I would never do that with my son. We don't understand God's holiness. We don't understand God's holiness because it's not the degree of the offense, but it's the holiness of the one you offended. Okay, it's not the degree of the offense, but it's the holiness of the one you offended. Slapping your brother is a different punishment than slapping the president. If there was a slab of marble, a hundred yards long and a hundred yards high, and every thousand years, a bird flew by the slab of marble and sharpens its beak and flew away, if, I, if God told the people of hell, when that slab of marble is the size of a pebble, you'll get out, they would rejoice. But they won't. It's free, it's eternal. And it's like, man, for us, we're like, that just sounds, it sounds like such a preposterous punishment for the crime. But again, it's the holiness and the sacredness of the one you offended. How long does it take to shoot and kill someone? To pull the trigger is about a second to a second and a half. But how long do we give them in jail? Life in prison. Why? Because of the sacredness of the one that they offended. <sighs> but when the average person thinks of hell, they're like, I mean... I was actually on a plane typing this out and the lady sitting next to me was looking over at my laptop and she's like, 
the title of the talk was, um, at that point, it was just Eternity in Hell. I didn't have a catchy title like God's Hell. So I was, you know, I just went with like Eternity in the Hell, just kind of hold the place setting, you know. And um, she looked at me and she goes, oh, no, no, no. And I wasn't even asking for her advice, okay? I was not asking her. She's like, oh, no, no, no. It's not eternity in hell. And I looked at her and I was like, you know, you, you actually have no idea. You have no idea if that's true or not. And she's like, oh, I do too. I mean, God wouldn't send people to hell for eternity. And I was like, okay, where do you get that? Where do you get that from? Show me your book. And she's like, okay, you're right. I mean, I don't know for sure, but you know, it just doesn't make sense. For most of us, you know, Hitler goes to hell. Hitler goes to hell and mass murders go to hell. Hitler goes to hell, mass murders go to hell. Those who work at the DMV go to hell. Like all those people go to hell. All those people go to hell, right? And, and, and that's a good thing. But for me, for you, for my friend, for my mom, we don't. We don't. Because what happens is we've reduced sin. Okay, when you and I think of sin, a lot of times, especially as non-believers, we're like, oh my gosh, parking ticket. Okay, I looked at something inappropriate. Okay, God, give me my fine. Okay, I ask for forgiveness. Okay, I move on. And that's kind of how we view sin. Like just something, a bad deed we did that was a one-off from who we are. But that's not how the Bible describes us. When the Bible describes sin, it literally says you have joined the rebellion of Satan. You have joined the rebellion. You have rejected God. You've declared independence. You are actually opposed to God. You have now aligned yourself with the enemy. When that's your definition of sin, suddenly you're like, well, yeah, you're in opposition. You want to fight. Hell is the only option. The fourth thing that this shows us when you study hell, not only is it created for angels and demons, God doesn't want people to go there. It shows us his holiness, but it also shows us, it also shows us his kindness, his kindness. Let me read to you John three sixteen, the way it should have been written. Okay? Prepare yourself. And the lady on the plane did not like this. For God did not care about the world, for he is holy and they are not. They are condemned and God made no effort to help. That's John three sixteen and how it should have been read. For God did not care about the world, he is holy and they are not. They are condemned and God made no effort to help. But instead, look at what happens. This should shock us. What? God so loved the world, why? Why does he care that he gave his only son? Not only does he care, but he's moved to action. He's moved to respond. That whoever believes in him, you're not good, you can't be good, and goodness is not even enough to pay for your repeatedly offending and joining the rebellion. 
but he pays the price that if you believe you should not perish but have life don't be afraid of hell I think it's an incredible tool and, and fact of the afterlife. Uh, if, if this is the first time you've kind of ever heard a, a message on this or like, wow, I've never even seen these verses. Um, if you want further reading, there's a, a phenomenal um, book and it's just basically, it's called Four Views of Hell. Four Views of Hell. And, and this is a series. There's like 60 in the series. So there's four views of creation, four views of tribulation, four views of the rapture, four views of God in time, four views of, of um, hell. I mean, it's just, it goes on and on. Um, and, and I bought this book and basically the way the four views books work is they do four different views. Each one has a chapter. And then after that chapter, the other three people get a two page rebuttal. And then that author gets to the final page. So it's like, it's like uh, Burke will write chapter one and have this opinion we just had tonight, which is eternal torment. And then Stackhouse and Perry and Wells will write two pages of rebuttal. And then the next chapter, Stackhouse writes his chapter and then so-and-so. And so for me, uh, I align very well with Burke. And if you're like, man, I think I wanna learn more, but I also wanna learn other people's perspectives. Like what's the Catholics believe? Or what do universalists believe? What's annihilationism? That's kind of been a huge new, new thing that uh, people have brought up. I'll tell you, these counterpoint books, I really like them. Matter of fact, uh, two weeks ago, I was talking to 300 students at K-State, 300 college students, and I'm getting set, I'm finishing up, I get the mic off, and this girl comes up to me, she's a sophomore, she's like, I can't believe. And I was like, what's going on? She's like, man, I can't get past God and Joshua and him killing man, women, and children. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's a tough one. And she's like, I just can't wrap my head around it. And so I said, man, can I try? You know, you only have like seven minutes with this girl. And so I was like, man, can I just tell you there's a phenomenal book. It's called Show Them No Mercy. And it's four views of the Canaanite genocide that you're talking about. And I said, man, I align with Merrill's position. So read Merrill's position and you're going to see really how this plays out. And so all that to say, um, even as you try to share your perspective of the reality of the afterlife, you can, you know, if someone's struggling with it, you can be like, hey, I want you to, to check this book out. Um, 1820, 1820, Thomas Jefferson, the King James Bible had just been released. He ordered two copies from England. Why two copies? Because prints on the front and back of each Bible. They, they're shipped over. He gets them. He unboxes them. He puts them both side by side. He then grabs a razor, reads through the New Testament, and cuts out all the verses on hell and judgment. He needs two because of the front and back. He then takes the New Testament back to print without hell in it. And you can buy the Jefferson Bible on Amazon today. We don't choose what we cut out. We can only ask, why is it there? 
and how is this going to fuel my evangelism and my own heart and my own understanding of who God is? Thank you.